Pro Cycling season is just around the corner. We here at Velo News have you covered with all the news, feature stories, analysis, and commentary on VeloNews.com. And right now, we have a great deal going on for joining our digital membership, both Velo News Pass and Active Pass. You can get one year of Velo News Pass for $41.65. That gets you all of the exclusive content on VeloNews.com, plus personalized feed, ad-free digital experience, exclusive members-only content, and a print magazine subscription, in addition to some cool industry discounts. Uh, Active Pass, right now, $84.15 for one year, and you get all of that, plus much more. Uh, free discounted entry to events, coaching advice, list goes on and on. You can get all the information you need around our passes at VeloNews.com forward slash active pass. That's VeloNews.com forward slash active pass. All of the exclusive content around cycling that you could ever want. Check it out now. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a very, very busy Tuesday here at the Velo News Home Headquarters in Lafayette, Colorado. Uh, we have a great podcast for you today. Second half of the show, uh, we have a long interview with Mr. Garrett Thomas. That's right, the 2018 Tour de France champion. I connected with Garrett the other day, and we have a long conversation about what 2020 hold, 2021. It's 2021. That's what year it is. Let me check the calendar. Yep, 2021. What 2021 holds for old G and uh, some of his thoughts on like what happened in 2020 with the Giro and Teo Gegenhart and the Tour de France and all that jazz. Uh, really psyched to have Garrett on the pod. Uh, before we get to that, though, we are right in right back into it. New cycle is humming. Pro cycling, the sport that never seems to take a day off, is back at full gas into the news cycle. And uh, here to help us understand everything that's going on is Mr. Andrew Hood. Uh, Hoodie and I have been hopping on these um, pre-season phone calls with stars of the sport in the last few days. We've been hearing from guys like Vincenzo Nibali, Caleb Ewan, Lizzie Dydenen about what the season holds for them and asking them lots of questions. And we have lots of perspective and thoughts on what our favorite stars of the sport have been up to. Uh, Andrew Hood, hello. What's going on in Spain? Give us the hoodie update uh, on what this week holds for you. Doing Freddie, Freddie G. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about uh, how normally this time of year we're just as busy, but we're down on the Mediterranean coast at some posh hotel. You know, the the sun's peeking out, uh, even though it's early to mid January down on the Mediterranean coast, be it in Spain, Italy, or even France, you know, it's usually pretty temperate and mild down there. Uh, but man, this year it's all zoom. I mean, the riders are all down there. All the teams have kind of decamped to their typical training areas. And some teams have kept a little bit closer to home this year, but everyone's down in the typical places down there in the Spanish coast by Calpe and Denia, uh, Bora and some of the Italian teams are over in Italy. Um, but they've kind of recreated the bubble. Uh, they've rented out like a Mitchelton Scott uh, bike exchange this year, rented out an entire golf course hotel. They have it to themselves, recreated the Tour de France bubble. Everyone got COVID tested going in, no really mixing with anybody else. 
outside their uh, team bubble. And that means no journalists, no journalists coming in for these interviews. So what we normally do face to face or, you know, small roundtable chats uh, by a pool somewhere on the med. We're all in pajamas, you know, doing our Zoom calls. And uh, it's a little bit different vibe, a little bit different. I mean, I don't know, just in the last 72 hours, I think I've had about 12 Zoom calls with pro riders. And I think everyone's starting to get a little bit cross-eyed. Yeah, I mean... The Zoom dynamic that our listeners are no doubt familiar with from their own professional lives where like, you know, by the time you get to Zoom call number two or three, your eyes are glazed over, your brain no longer functions, like you barely can speak English because you're so bored of staring at the screen or staring at the picture of yourself in the upper right hand corner of the screen. Ah, Zoom. I, I hate Zoom. Um, that is definitely applying to our lives right now because um, we have been on, like Hoodie said, sort of a never ending um, musical chairs with uh, pro cyclists and team directors on on these Zoom calls, or uh, opening up WhatsApp and finding a like forty five minute Zoom chat video that uh, they're just gonna dump on you, where like the team PR guy is asking Mika Landa questions, <laughs> like wow, polls questions about what his season is gonna be. Um, it's it's the brave new world of doing cycling media in twenty twenty one. But you hit on it there. I mean, I think it's really interesting trying to recreate the bubbles for these teams, you know, in their training camps. And this is this is the January camp. Like this isn't just the get to know you camp. This is like the, hey, they're training. They're going hard. Um, they're putting in big, big hard miles and kind of the the rip everyone's legs off camp. And um I'm curious, do you think these bubbles then will continue as they get to some of these early Spanish races um or are these guys and gals going to then go back home and travel before like what what does the process look like from here on out for them it's certainly going to be race bubbles at, at all the events uh first racing well we just saw this past week unfortunately the mallorca challenge been canceled the the covid cases are kind of spiking here in spain like just in general in europe uh but even today, there were some reports in the Spanish media that the Murcia race, Valencia, all these February races are still on as of right now. So everyone kind of has their fingers crossed. But to be honest, I don't know if they're going to be maintaining these bubbles uh, between the end of these kind of uh, January camps straight into competition. Uh, I really don't know the answer to that. I, I would assume that anyone down there in Spain – it's going to maybe Valencia, which starts really about two, two and a half weeks. They might just stay at that camp, and go straight to the race. But, uh, you know, a lot, so many of the riders, especially the foreign riders that non-European riders, they all live in Girona. I think they have a pretty good routine down. You know, now they, they will go home and, you know, they hang out with their, you know, their cluster of other riders who might have been all tested negative. Uh, I think riders and staffers are all very careful. They've learned a lot of lessons over this past year. They know, you know, what they can do and, and they know the consequences if they get popped for a uh, positive uh, diagnosis for uh, COVID. So everyone is very careful. And I think everyone really is hopeful that the calendar is going to unfold as it is on the calendar right now. Well, let's get to some of the comments that have come out of this first week of rider Zoom calls amid the Zoom fatigue of us being, you know, totally glazed over and half paying attention to what our favorite star riders are having to say because it's, you know, Zoom call number seven. Um, it does sound like there's been some interesting comments coming out of uh, these early uh, rider interactions. Um, let's start with Caleb Ewan. You know, Lado Sudal had um, a call, media call last week. And um, journalists were asking Caleb Ewan about the dangers of sprinting. I mean, that's atop everyone's mind last, after last year at the Tour of Poland with Fabio Jakobsen going to the hospital after tangling with uh, Dylan Groenewegen. And I, I know there's been calls for, oh, increased safety and, you know, we need to 
put better barriers up and maybe having things like sprint lanes. And it sounds like uh, Caleb Ewan um, had some interesting perspective on things like, eh, why sprint lanes probably won't work and just what the inherent dangers of world tour sprinting are that you can't really um, erase. Hoodie, what was your take on what uh, Caleb had to say? Yeah, hats off to Caleb. I mean, he's quite articulate young man and, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't uh, skirt, skirt away from any of the questions uh, we were asking him about uh, rider safety and, and those issues of what happened with Dylan Gronewegen. And uh, our, our Belgian colleague, Anne, was really asking him about, you know, does, does uh, Caleb expect Gronewegen to get a, re- a welcome return in the Peloton when he comes back? It was an interesting question that, you know, will somehow, did somehow Gronewegen cross the line? Did he go too far? And how will the Peloton react? And he thought that uh, the pro Peloton, everyone kind of realizes that what he did was wrong and, and Gronewegen admitted it. But he, he was kind of hinting that, you know, Gronewegen, he won't get a cold shoulder when he comes back, but he won't get a big warm embrace either. But that kind of, he said it was coming from more of kind of the rider who he is. Uh, he was saying that he's not really a rider that chats with a lot of people. He's not gregarious in the bunch. He said he kind of has that bad reputation of being a guy who's going to shut you down, shut down your lane. He said it certainly wasn't the first time that something like that happened. And uh, Ewan went so far to say is that uh, Grunewagen was completely aware of what he was doing when he did that. He said there's no way that, when, you know, when you're sprinting, you have a sense of where everyone is around you, and he said there's no way that that, that move was accidental. Of course, he didn't he didn't accuse him of doing it, you know, premeditatedly in terms of uh, trying to cause him harm. Of course, no one would have wanted what happened happened, but he was saying that uh, you know within the cycling circle, within the sprinting circle, the Grunewagen is not probably the most popular character in the bunch. But he had some really interesting things to say just about. Uh, we put a couple of postings up on the on the Bellman's website. Check them out. And he was just saying about how all the sprinters realize sprinting is a highly dangerous game. He said, if you don't accept that, if you don't embrace the danger of sprinting, you'll never be a top sprinter and you'll never win a sprint. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's part of what goes into it that, you know, fans and journalists don't appreciate and understand, you know, in seeing the clips on TV and seeing the things in slow motion, it's just like that all is going on in real time for them. And the chances that they take and the doors that they open or the doors that they close, like that's part of the game. You know, as as much as I I was dismayed to see, you know, that clip over and over again of Jakobsen being put into the boards by Gronewagen. And as much as I think Gronewagen was at fault, um, there is also the fact that it's like, that's something we've seen a million times before in world tour sprinting, you know, a guy closing a door on another guy who's coming up on the inside. And like, to a certain degree, like that's, that's the, the, the tactics and the strategies of, of the racing. And, um, I don't know if you can legislate that out of the sport. I mean, you know, you watch an NFL football and they're trying to legislate out like hits to the head and, you know, these big, heavy, hard hits. And I think that's a worthwhile and a worthy thing for them to do. But you see this entire season where like the, the players are just like, well, I don't really know how to play. How do you do your job if you're taking out some of these elements of the sport that for generations have been like the, the chess move that decides the winner from the loser? Yeah, and Ewan did comment on how the uh, race jury has gotten stricter on enforcing those. Anyone that gets barged in a sprint, usually uh, there's usually a penalty, a relegation. The sprint we saw that at the tour, of course, with Sagan, uh, just throughout the whole season, and then just the whole Jacobson 
episode really ele- elevated that conversation. And he said that, uh, well, you notice it, in sprints, when someone does come on the inside next to the barriers and the rider in the middle who doesn't shut them down and the, and the person wins the race, the first person they think is not their teammates for sending them up. They say, hey, thank you, Andrew Greipel, for not slamming me into the fences. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're all, they're all very well aware of the space. And one thing he was really adamantly against was this idea of sprint lanes. Yeah. Uh, Tail Boss, the former track sprinter, who, you know, back, way back in the day, if you remember, had a little run in with Dale Impey when he kind of came across from, uh, from track, when he came across into sprinting. And remember, he threw down Dale Impey, you know, kind of a track move where take your hands off the handlebar, which you never do in a sprint, grabbed Impey by the back of his jersey and pushed him, pulled him behind him, which, you know, you do that. There's a little more argy bargy in the track than you do uh, on the road scene. Uh, but, Teo Boss and others have suggested one way to avoid some of these crashes is to create sprint lanes. So the idea, you know, just set up not not eight across, but set up two or three lines going down the final two or three hundred meters of a sprint saying you can't go inside the, the like a, a blue line on the track. You can't go inside that next to the fences, maybe have one or two more lanes uh, in the middle of the sprint and say you can't go out of that space. And, and uh, Caleb Young was just adamantly opposed to that. He said, you do that and you would just suck all the life and excitement out of sprinting. All right. No sprint lanes. That's it. I, I have been convinced by Caleb Young. Okay. Bing. We're going to move on to our next set of interviews. And that uh, is a set of interviews you sat in on, Andrew Hood, with the Trek Segafredo classics duo of Jasper Stuyven and Mads Peterson. Uh, two guys who had tremendous success in 2020 with uh, Jasper Stuyven winning uh, Omloput Nesblad and Mads Peterson winning Gent Wevelgam. And, you know, two huge results for that classics, pro- that much maligned classics program, which over the years I feel like has kind of underachieved. Yet I don't know if in my mind I'm willing to hold them up on the same level as uh, Jumbo Visma, Wout van Aert. And uh, Alpecin Phoenix with Matthew Vanderpool. I see. I still see them, despite their strength, as like they're kind of like category one A or one B to me. Uh, but what do those guys have to say? Do they feel like they belong in the same uh, on the same level as Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool at the classics? Yeah. In fact, uh, Steven was a little bit defensive when we asked him about uh, the rise of Vanderpool. And Van Aert saying that, uh, sure, you know, these guys, you know, when they're good, they're very, very good. But he said not everybody's going to win every race they start. He said, well, back in the day, everyone said so I was going to win five or six uh, Perry Robays and he's only won one. Uh, so he, he pushed back against the idea that we're entering this kind of phase of this new rivalry of kind of like a new era of like Bonin versus Conchalara and everyone else plays for leftovers. He he would he was not buying into that concept at all. He thought that uh, you know he was he was saying how equal and deep the kind of classics field is, and we've seen that over the last few years. It's not you know the Bone and Conchalara or even just the Quick Step team dominating every race anymore. Uh, it is much deeper, much more competitive. More teams are bringing solid uh, classics programs into the into the into Belgium especially. And you know hats off to Trek like Fredo man. Last year you know what there's six major one-day races in the Northern Classics, you know, between the monuments and the and the one-day classics. And they won two of them. So that's about as good as it gets these days. Um, of course, what has eluded them so far, of course, is Robe and Flanders, the two big ones that really count. And I I asked uh, I asked uh, Jasper, I'm like, you know, when are you going to win a big one? And he's like, oh, well, gee, you know, when I won 
Kern Brussels Kern at 24, they said that was pretty big. And then when I won Omloop last year, they said that was pretty big. But I guess neither one of those are big enough. I'm like, no, man, you need to win Rovay or Flanders. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you pesky journalist asking the tough questions and uh, telling him this big wins are not big enough. Um, I'm with you, man. Like, I look, I love Jesper Steuven. I have been to his chocolate shop. I interviewed him at his chocolate shop. He's a very nice gentleman, very talented bike racer. He won Kuhn at 24, and, like, I think everyone was ready to anoint him like the next Cancellara. Um, I, I, gun to my head, I don't see him on the same level as Matthew Vanderpool and uh, Wout Van Aert. I think he's very strong. I think the team is, is strong. Mads is super strong. But it's just, like, I still see those guys – as winning if something bad happens to the other two guys. You know, it's sort of like Mads won when Vanderpool and Van Aert marked each other out in that last 3K at Gent Wevelgem. Hey, chapeau to Mads for seizing that opportunity and going for it. Like that's what you have to do. That's great. But um if you know there's a front group if there's a front group at Flanders heading into the Old Quermont for the second time and like Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool are in there alongside you know, Jasper Stuyven, it's like, good luck for third place there, Jasper. <laughs> good on you, mate. <laughs> but anyway, it's the classics. They hold the races. That's why they do. We got to see, uh, we got to see if old Big J Jass and Mads can come up with the goods. Um, okay. On to the next set of calls. Again, at Hoodie, you dedicated your weekend to this one. This was a painful one. Bora Hansgrohe with um, Sagan, Ralph Dank, Wilco Kelderman, the new arrival, Um you know, to me, one of the highlights that came out of that group of calls was what the heck are they going to do with Pascal Ackerman? I mean, he has shown himself to be a, a Swiss army knife of a bike racer, a guy who can climb, who can sprint, who can do classics. You can do so much with him. Yet his progression progression is kind of limited by the presence of Peter Sagan. I mean, Peter Sagan is highest paid guy in the sport. And has the ability to win the same type of races that Pascal Ackerman has the ability to win too. So, how is Bora handling the Pascal Ackerman question? Uh, by avoiding it, because <laughs> we because we asked that exact question to everybody to Sagan to Ackerman to uh, to Ralph Dank and the whole crew there. And you know, hats off to those guys. I mean, uh, you know, none of them are native English speakers, and uh, you know, we can fake it in Spanish, French, and Italian. But when it comes to uh, German and Slovakian and Dutch, you know, thanks to them for speaking in English to all of us uh, journalists. But the, uh, you know, the, that is the big question for that team going into the tour. Um, you know, Wilco Kelderman is really kind of stepping in as their GC guy for Bora going into the tour next year. Bookman sounds like he's going to the Giro. Um, you know, then the big question is, you know, what is Sagan doing? And can Ackerman fit into that? Because if you bring a GC guy, a couple of climbers, they also have Shockman, Kamna, who won a stage in this last year's tour. Pretty deep squad. I mean, Bora, hats off to Bora as well. I mean, they've really grown and developed that team, you know, when they kind of stepped up and then they brought on Sagan. It was like, you know, it's kind of like the club team with Sagan there. But it, since those last three, couple of three years now, they've really filled out that team and, you know, their hats off. They have quality, deep squad across Grand Tours, sprinting and the classics. And, you know, the question is, Sagan wants to go Classics, Giro, Tour, Olympics, and Worlds. So all of that, something's not going to fit in there. So there is some speculation that Sagan might skip the Tour because eight sprints on tap for uh, the Tour this year, roughly. And Dank said they want to have a sprint 
presence. There's a 14-man long list. Ackerman, Sagan are both on it. I think it really is up to Peter what he wants to do. I mean, he, they're not going to tell Peter he can't go to the tour. But I think even if Sagan does go to the tour uh, and you can bring in Ackerman, there is enough kind of mix of stages in, in, the, in the 2021 tour that Ackerman will have his chances in the pure sprint stages and Sagan will have his days on those kind of more challenging finales when Ackerman might not be there. But, you know, that's why uh, Sam Bennett left, right? He wasn't getting his chance to go to the tour, and he went to quick step, and he won a couple of stages and took the green jersey off Sagan. So interesting puzzle they have there at Bora for sure. Well, and I think the other puzzle piece that weighs heavily on this is, you know, there's Sagan's motivation, but then also Sagan's fitness and form. I mean, as we saw in 2020, he just wasn't at the same level. I mean, you can blame a lot of that on lockdown and what his life was like. And, uh, you know, he just wasn't at the same form in the tour. And he won a stage of the Giro, but it just wasn't the same Sagan. So I have to think that so much of that team's decision-making is, you know, based on whether they have a fit and motivated Sagan or a Sagan who's, you know, he's good, but he's just kind of going through the motions because what you don't want is you don't want to have built this amazing team from the ground up, but then have this sort of specter of this big dollar celebrity cyclist who's not winning there because then the motivations of the team don't align with the motivation, the realities of the, of the star rider. So, you know, that is one of the biggest storylines I'm going to be following in 2021 is just like the strength and fitness of Peter Sagan, especially if some of these early uh, early season races get canceled and he's not able to like race his way back into shape. Uh, okay, ding! On to the next group of athletes. I sat in on the uh, Trek Segafredo calls with both Lizzie Dynan and Elisa Longo-Borghini. And look, Trek Segafredo women were the best women's team of 2021. They won the Women's World Tour. Lizzie Dynan won the individual Women's World Tour standings. You know, they were kind of week in, week out, the team that was most successful at challenging against um, Bulls Dolmans and Annemiek van Vluten. And some of the interesting uh, dynamics that came out of those two calls was first, um, Lizzie Dynan is going to really focus in on the cobblestone. So Flanders, Roubaix, Gent Webblegem and kind of sacrifice some of her attention to the Hilly Classics. And I think that's interesting because that shows that uh, Trek Segafredo is now a dynamic enough team where they can take their star rider and really say, hey, just focus on this block. You know, so much of what we hear in women's cycling is like, you know, these women have to focus on all the races. Like, it's not like men's races where everyone is super hyper-specialized. It's like with these women, they're like wanting to win every single race. And Trek Segafredo, I feel like, has had that mentality. So to be able to really say, hey, Lizzie, you know, take take the Cobble Classics. Elisa will take the Flat Classics. They have some sprinters coming on the team with um, Chloe Hosking and Amelie Anna, uh, Anna Didrikson. Um, that team's going to be even better this year than they were uh, last year, which is a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, that team is really just stacked with stars, star power in that team. I, I, I did read your comments, what, what you said about uh, Robay and just the allure of winning the first women's Robay. You know, of course, it was taken off the calendar, unfortunately, this year due to COVID. And that's going to just be, you know, a huge kind of goal for so many riders. And I think it's interesting to see how they're letting her just focus on that because, you know, it will take a different 
kind of training and preparation to be really uh, on your top of your game for a ride like Roubaix. It's going to be a little bit of a race into the unknown. I mean, they've raced cobbles before, but we'll see exactly what the course, how, how, how many kilometers of cobbles up they'll, they'll be on the course, but it's going to be a brutal race. So I think it's a, a you know, interesting kind of pivot for her to, to approach that. And then also, you know, bringing on some sprinters onto that team as well this year is going to make them more well-rounded as well. Another challenge I think that all uh, the women's peloton is going to have is focusing in on the Olympics while also trying to figure out what the heck to do with the Giro Rosa. You remember the Giro Rosa like, got demoted for 2021 going from a women's world tour level race just down to sort of a pro series race because they couldn't you know, commit to some of the financial commitments around television and production. And on one hand, you know, I've had some women tell me, well, we actually think that's good because like the Giro Rosa isn't actually up to the same standard as some of the one-day races in terms of professionalism. So when I posed that question to Longo Borghini and Dinan of like, how do you view the Giro Rosa? I mean, are you going to focus on it, take it as seriously? Both of them were like, oh man, this poses kind of a conundrum for us because we realize it's not a women's world tour race anymore, but it's still the longest race we have, still the hardest race we have, still a race that all of us love. Um, would love to win stages on. So it seems like it's something sort of mentally, emotionally that uh, a lot of these women's pros are going to have to like reconcile with at some point during the year. How much attention do you give to the uh, Giro Rosa? Yeah, I've been taking advantage of these calls just to ask around about this whole idea of this quarantine. You know, we, the story broke a couple weeks ago about the possibility of this two-week quarantine. And from what the, we're getting more understanding is basically this quarantine idea is going to be for people going into the athlete's village. Um, so cyclists, by luck, are kind of, you know, there's more in these satellites. Uh, all their venues are satellite venues. And all the teams have most of their service courses and their hotels and stuff are scattered around the outskirts of Tokyo. So it sounds like that uh, this kind of two-week quarantine is not going to happen. But still, no one knows. Uh, we did some reporting on it. Sources telling us a five-day in before the competition, which would allow people to race the Tour and the Giro Rosa. We've had people tell us that, no, it's 14-day quarantine. Is going to be for all athletes, but now people were saying that that it's only going to be for the athletes in the athlete village in downtown Tokyo. Still, no word from the IOC or the UCI on that. Great, I love it when they leave things uh, till last minute. It makes everyone's life uh, real easy on that end. I'm, you know, is there going to be a two week quarantine for journalists? I don't know. Hoodie, should we should we book you a, a hotel room in Chengdu for two weeks? <laughs> How about two weeks in Bangkok? I can handle that. Then I just parachute in. Yeah, there we go. Fellow news travel budget, no problem. All right, bing, on to our last call of the day. Uh, we'll have more of these probably next week, but uh, you talked with Vincenzo Nibali. The shark of Messina did a call talking about his 2021 ambitions, which sounds like he is packing as much world tour level road racing into his 36-year-old legs as uh, anyone out there. Um what does old Nibbles have in store for 2021? Yeah, Vince Nibbles, you know, he was he was admitting that he had a rough year coming out of COVID last year. I think we saw some of the older veterans, you know, really struggling in that lockdown period. You know, you were mentioning Sagan, Valverde, Joubert. I mean, a lot of these older guys that have their routines, that kind of ride into these training periods and they know how to really taper their their peaks. You know, they they really struggled when they had the, it all pulled out, pulled out from underneath them with the lockdown. And even though uh, Nibali could train, he, he just said that this whole season got discombobulated. He wasn't happy with what happened at the Giro. He said by the third week last year, you know, he, he lost a little bit of motivation. 
you know, the season wasn't going as well as he had hoped because he, he said, you know, his plan was to try to win that Giro last year. Uh, but going into 2021, he said he's refreshed, freshly motivated. The big, the big challenge for him this year is the Olympics. Um, he is uh, doing quite a bit of racing before, as you mentioned. He'll be doing Valencia, Agave, Terreno, uh, some of the spring classics, assuming they all happen. Then the Giro, which he said he's taking day by day. He's not really committed to the overall. The Tour is going to be a trampoline for Tokyo. He says that uh, that worked really well for him in 2016 at Rio. Remember, you know, he was really uh, the cutting edge of that race. He looks like he might have had the win in his legs and got caught up in the, the crash off that final descent, opened the door, and, and so a few other riders went down, opening the door for uh, Golden Greg Van Avermaet to win the gold medal in Rio. Oh, Golden he, Greg. Oh, Golden Greg, Golden Greg. And, uh, you know, he believes that the Tokyo course is even better for him. So he's just kind of putting everything, all his marbles into that Olympic uh, hat. Uh, I love it, man. I love it. Giro tour into the Olympics. Uh, no slowing down for the shark of Messina, even though he may be getting a little uh, long in the tooth. Well, that's what we got. Uh, we're going to have more calls in the next few days to catch up with our favorite riders and no doubt talk about um, the news that filters out of that on the podcast. Um, so thank you so much to Andrew Hood. Um Let's get on to hear what Garrett Thomas has to say about 2021. Okay, my guest on the podcast today is a man of many talents. He is a Tour de France champion, a mustache aficionado, and a fellow podcaster. We're, we're going to get to that later. Uh, it's Garrett Thomas coming to us from the Canary Islands. Uh, welcome to the Vela News podcast, Garrett. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure about a mustache uh, aficionado or whatever you called me. I'm not sure about that one, but yeah. Have you trimmed the uh, the upper lip hair? Yeah, I have at the moment. Yeah, but um, so I do Movember, and then the rest of the time I just get a bit lazy, basically, and I end up having a mustache. Um, there's no thought behind it, really, but uh, yeah, one of those things. Oh, uh, Garrett, right now you are at the um, Team Ineos Grenadiers training camp in the Canary Islands, and. Um, is this like the the get to know you training camp with your new teammates, or is this the like the rip everyone's legs off training camp? What's sort of the the feel and vibe of this one? Um, it's kind of a strange one because obviously with last year and the season finishing so late, and then we didn't have a December camp um, because the season finished so late, plus the whole pandemic. Um, you know, generally December would be the get to know you, and then the, the January one would be a bit more intense. And but saying that, I, I, this is the first time I've been on a January camp with the team since probably I think the first year I was on the team in, in 2010. Because um, the years after that, I was racing in Down Under in Adelaide most seasons, and then the last three years I've been in LA actually. And um, yeah, I've really enjoyed my time down there. But yeah, obviously with the the travel and everything being a bit more. Difficult at the moment. I decided to stay here and come here with the team. You know, you have some new um, faces on the team with Adam Yates coming on board, some returners with Richie Port. I mean, how would you describe the social dynamic around the team and how different it is compared to uh, 2020 and 2019? Yeah, it's great. I think, obviously, here, not everyone is here. Obviously, the South American guys are over there. Um, Richie went back to Australia, so he's not here. But the, the European-based guys, everyone's here. And, um, yeah, just... It seems to be a younger team, but maybe that's just me getting older. But uh, it's definitely a good, a good sort of um, vibe, I guess. A good atmosphere in the team, you know. And, and uh, 
yeah, it's just uh, everyone's motivated, you know, it's, as they always are in January, really, and everyone's keen to sort of get the get the time on the bike and uh, yeah, show everyone what work they've sort of been doing the last couple of weeks. Um, like you said, it's it's a younger team. There's new guys coming in. Like, what role do you see yourself playing, and how differently do you see that being from years past? Um, I guess the main thing is just uh, making sure. I'm in good shape and worrying about myself with that respect, really. And then, you know, when it comes to the team, I think just leading by example almost, not really, um, I'm not much of a talker, not for talking's sake anyway. And, um, yeah, I think just, you know, I've been with the team since the start and obviously with British Cycling and, and Dave B prior to that. And I think that whole sort of philosophy and mentality and, and work ethic and things, I think the key sort of things that make the team so special I think uh, is you know always just sort of um, continuing that really along with some of the the other guys that have been here a while people like you know Luke Rowe and, and, and Ben Swift the other Brits as well because you know it's, it's still a British team as well and just keeping that core British and that sort of mentality still British um, you know which is obviously challenge is the wrong word but when there's so many different nationalities and cultures in the team you know it's I think it's good to have that real sort of Right, this is how we work, and this is what we do, and um, yeah, everyone sort of buys into that, which I think is is great. So, yeah, I think it's just sort of leading by example, really. Yeah. How differently does it feel though without Chris on the team? This is obviously the first year that uh, Chris Froome will not be on the team. He probably wasn't around a ton in 2020 with rehabbing from the injury, but I'm curious if there's, I don't know, a different vibe or a different personality of the team now that Chris has moved on. Without sounding harsh, it. It doesn't seem too different at the moment. But I think once we get racing is when we'll actually notice. And, you know, when you see pictures of him in um, on Instagram in his new team kit and things, that, that's definitely strange to see. And, you know, I think it, for sure once we actually start racing, we're on that start line together and then suddenly, you know, we're in different teams. And, you know, he's not on our team bus and in the kitchen truck. And he'll definitely, um, he'll definitely be missed 100%. And, um, you know, I've raced with him, well, his whole career. You know, I did one year previous to that. So, um It'll definitely be a big change, um, but yeah, we're looking forward to, to racing him. Actually, it'll be uh, you know, it'll be good fun. I think. You know, you touched on it uh, earlier there, but one of the stories we've been covering throughout the, the last year, year and a half, is just how strong this current generation of riders is. I mean, you know, Egan wins the Tour at 22. Same with Pogachar. I mean, Remco Evenepoel has this entire team built around him. I, I don't think he's old enough to like legally drink in most places in the United States. Um, and I'm curious how you, how you have, uh, have seen this, knowing that like in, in your generation, you know, yeah, there were some guys who got really good, huge opportunities and got a lot of resources put behind them when they were that young. But I feel like with your generation, it was still sort of a, hey, you got to prove yourself and a couple years to sort of, you know, knock your head around. Um, I, I'm curious what your perspective has been on this new generation getting so many opportunities and so many big things coming to them so quickly. Yeah, I think um, opportunity-wise, I think it's great. You know, if they're obviously good enough, so you know they get the shout, they get the chance. And um, but I think the biggest thing is is just the way juniors and then the twenty threes just train and you know go about being a bike rider. Really, like you know when I look back to me being. 18, 19, 20 compared to the boys, you know, these days. Um, okay, I was on the track as well, so it was, it was a different focus for myself. But, you know, it's night and day, the, the professionalism, basically. Um, you know, I was out 
two, three times a week most of the time with my mates from school, you know, going to town and just drinking and, and doing all sorts of stuff as well as, you know, riding my bike and doing that on the side, really. And, you know, whereas now, you know, junior teams are almost, you know, professional, you know. I think, obviously, at the very top of the sport, everything's moved on um, since, you know, 2004 when I was a junior. Um, and that just trickles down. I think over time that sort of feeds down into the end of 23s, the juniors and stuff. So I think that's the biggest thing really is, um, you know, they just train better, eat better, um, just a lot more sort of committed really. And um, yeah, so they're able to perform immediately. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's great for the, for the sport. I think there's so many um, potential winners of, of every race these days. You know, it's not just like you go to, Flanders and you think oh see, see the Boone or Cancellara is going to win it could be you know seven or eight guys and the same with the tour you know you look at the tour and it's not like it's not an Ulrich Armstrong battle it's you know same thing seven eight guys that could you know certainly be on the podium and, and potentially win so uh, I think it's great for the sport really what do you remember though about being like 22 23 your first few years as a pro on, on Barlow World and some of these teams I mean did you have to fight for opportunities were you you know trying to use your personality to stand out on the team like what do you recall about being a first or second year pro and like what that dynamic was like compared to what you see with these guys I was ridiculous it's just, just night and day between me and them then I was you know I was when I was first year pro I was 21 riding the tour and um I was just it was just a battle just to finish the thing like I never would have even dreamt of of trying to race even one day let alone for the whole thing and um you know these boys are doing that now and but I think you know the track was my fame, main focus then which definitely um made a big difference but at the same time like yeah I, I, I even if I concentrated fully on the road I, I would never have been that good so um yeah it's just a huge difference and you know people are different as well some people you know can perform early earlier in life and develop quicker others a bit more of a slow burner and um you know i'm kind of when i sort of reflect on it now i'm i'm kind of happy the the way my sort of career developed you know with my track days and my olympic days and then obviously going on to the road from that and i think it's that sort of structure has almost given me longevity really um and sort of seeing different aspects of the sport as well um but yeah, the, the boys these days, just uh, it's insane how, how good they are. Yeah, and I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic to follow them with their careers to see if they have that level of longevity. I mean, I remember with Contador, you know, he was so, so strong so soon. And, you know, kind of by the time he was 33, 34, I mean, you could look at uh, his performances and see a real sort of downturn from when he was like 28, 29, 30. Whereas, like you said, you know, I mean, here you are, you're 34, you're going to be turning 35 this year. And I mean, from the performances that we've seen the last few years, I mean, is it safe to say you, you still, you feel like you're still at least on the way up or, I mean, I, you know, still feeling like you're at that elite grand tour contender level. Yeah, I think so. You obviously don't really know where your peak is till you start coming down, but I don't feel like I'm on the way down yet. And, um, you know, I'm still keen and, and still motivated to keep going. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, like I say, with, I think it's tough, you know, anyone that's at the top of their game, um, so young, it's just hard to maintain, you know, you look at Sagan, um, you know, he struggled the last sort of two years, really. Um, but he's been around the last 10 years, you know, and I think obviously people like Sagan, there's going to be other guys who, really stand out and break the sort of um the mold almost you know um the average almost but you know most guys 
you know, you can only be the top of your game for say four or five years, and I think it's, it's hard to sort of keep going and going. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Like you say, it will be interesting to see um, you know how long these boys go for and, and are winning for. So, I mean, it's early in the season. It's, you know, beginning of January. There's a lot of racing, a lot of training to do. But, I mean, at this point, are you thinking Tour de France? I mean, what what's the big objective for the year? Uh, yeah, I think the Tour, the tour is um, a good target for me. There's two TTs in it. And, you know, I still just love that race. And, um, you know, I still want to go back to the Giro, though, at some point. Um, third time lucky there. And just, just get around the thing first. And then see see where I can end up. But uh, yeah, I've had a bit of bad luck in the Giro, so it's certainly something that's in the back of my mind still. But I think this year, the Tour and hopefully the Olympics will be my sort of main sort of focus. Yeah, I mean, in the last few years, we've seen the Tour organizers get you know get get a little Welta esque with a lot of steep climbs, not a ton of uh, individual time trial miles. Um, this year, we see fifty eight k's of TTs plus some mountains. I mean, how do you how do you see this Tour? being raced how do you see the gc teams and riders approaching this race compared to what we've seen in the last couple of years yeah i think obviously the tts are going to be key and you know i like the look of them um but yeah i think you know jumbo obviously super strong um the last part well been getting stronger the last few years but last year really sort of stamped their authority on cycling really um so they're going to be good and then it'll be interesting to see uae obviously they'll, they'll have a defending champ and um you know they're gonna to have to step up as a team like you know I don't think it's out of line saying he was a different level compared to most of the guys at the race with him you know I think you know the way he rode off the back of Jumbo was was great and you know it worked really well for him but I think once you've you've won something that big suddenly all eyes are really fixed on you and it's a bit different then but um so yeah that'll be interesting see how they sort of handle that and and you know race with that and then obviously our team in the Oscar Grenadiers, you know, we obviously were disappointed massively last year with how it went. Um, you know, seeing the success we've had in the race. So, uh, yeah, and then obviously there's, like I said at, at the very start, you know, there's so many guys that can perform on GC as well. So, um, you know, I think it's, it'll be as competitive as ever. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. You know, do you see the team continuing with? the style of racing that it had at the Tour de France in years past with, you know, taking control of the pace, having an impenetrable army of domestiques on the front, you know, really trying to set the pace on the biggest climbs. Uh, do you think that's possible in, uh, in in the peloton of 2021? Yeah, I think it still is. I think, you know, that's the way Jumbo rode last year, really. Um, and, yeah, I think there's no point riding like that if you don't have well, one of the best guys in the race, though, you know, if you've got someone that's going to be, you know, fifth or sixth, then there's no reason to do that. But, you know, if you've got someone that's got a good shot of winning, then, and that's how they'd like it, then, uh, yeah, I think there's still there's still room for that, and there's still a way of doing that. You know, it's interesting you bring up Jumbo. I, I'm remembering back to that 2018 Tour de France, and, you know, Kreuzwick was strong, and Roglic was very strong, you know. I, I'm curious... As a guy who was on Sky and Ineos, seeing Yumbo slowly building these pieces and adding these guys and Roglic blossoming into a contender and you know hiring guys like Wout van Aert and Tom Dumoulin with this ambition of taking you guys on, like what was it like as an outsider seeing this team, you know, diligently build, you know, obviously putting pieces together to try and take you guys on? Did you did you 
take it seriously? Did you say, oh, what what the heck are they doing? I'm really curious what it was like from your perspective, seeing them building this team over the years. Yeah, it was, um, we're obviously aware of it and it was, obviously we prefer it if they didn't really and, and there wasn't any strong teams. But um, yeah, I think, you know, the way they've gone about it has, has been really good and, and credit to them and, you know, the staff and everything for doing that. Um, it, like you say, with Dumoulin and, and obviously Croyzweig, as well it'll be interesting to see how that whole leadership thing goes as well because they're obviously all competitive and all want to do well themselves so it'll be interesting to see um or who rides the tour to start with and then how they ride together um but yeah i think it it's great for the sport maybe not so great for us but i think it's great to have um you know some strong teams and you know super competitive do you remember there being an oh shit moment with them when it, you know, they, they hired someone or brought someone on, but like a, a real turning point moment where you could empirically look at that team and be like, ooh, that's, you know, they're really going to be tough now? Uh, I think it was more just a slow burner. I think obviously when Dumoulin joined as well, it was like, well, they definitely, um, you know, serious about it, got some money behind them. But I think it's more just the, the way they've gone about it as a team, you know, you know, they have, their, their training camps together and you know they're really pushing the nutrition and you know training really well and just their whole sort of philosophy and how they've gone about it really and you know you could see in the team time trial performances they were they're really sort of improving in that area and then everything else sort of followed that um you know it's people like cuss except cuss you, you never really would have thought he'd be riding the way he did last year but um so yeah they're, they're just strong as a as a whole team and that's the uh well, that's the best thing in it for them. Mm-hmm. You know, after the victory, at, at, after Teo's win at the Giro, uh, Dave Brailsford talked about, hey, you know, maybe we need to adopt more of an aggressive style in 2021. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are around that and if, if you've given some thought of what that might look like for you. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I enjoy that type of racing. You know, I've always, you know, like the classics t- sort of style, but at the end of the day, we have a framework that, that works for us um i wouldn't say you have to race like that but you need to be able to sort of adapt and everything but there's no point in going too far off what has worked for us in you know well how many times have we won like maybe seven tours in nine years so you know you obviously have to adapt and and change with the times but i don't think it needs to be completely different but you know i think it's more those smaller races um we had the tendency to race the same in every other race as we did in the tour, which, you know, could be a bit sort of boring almost, or, you know, there's definitely other ways to race. So I think that, that would be great. And I think, you know, giving other people chances and, and just sort of being a bit more aggressive in those sort of races. But I don't think, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, I could definitely see that, especially at a race like the tour. I mean, this year's Giro is so different because it, you know, after the first week or whatever, when you looked around at the GC field, there wasn't really anyone who stood out or any one team where you were like, okay, you know, they're, they are the strongest rider, strongest team. They're going to take this thing by the scruff of the neck. So to see Teo and Rowan really grab the race and, and do that with it, it's sort of like, well, you know, makes sense to be aggressive in that situation. But if it's, you know, if it's the tour and like you said, there's five, six, seven guys and teams who all have, you know, going full speed, yeah, it's completely different. And like, yeah, every race is just so, 
it's so different. You kind of start from scratch every year and every race. So yeah, you just need to take it as it comes. But I think definitely, yeah, you need to be able to adapt and and, and make decisions on the road for sure. And um, yeah, hopefully we will uh, we can do that. So with that Giro and the Giro crash, I mean, obviously it was a high point for the team with Teo winning and the team, you know, pulling a rabbit out of the hat there. But I'm really curious how it was for you from a emotional standpoint. I mean, look, you've had crashes and injuries and setbacks before at the Giro, but I mean, this one just seemed particularly cruel and harsh with, you know, all that happened with the tour and you saying, hey, you know, Torino, I'm real fit, ready to go do this thing. And, and it's like day three and, and you know, there's a, a bidon on the ground. I'm curious what your process was like from a mental, emotional standpoint of making it past that crash and that setback. Yeah, it was tough. It was, it was the hardest bit when the race is still going on to be honest so you know and as you say day three there was still a hell of a lot of racing to go so it's quite a long time um but yeah it's just uh it was more the fact you know i'd committed so much well to the tour to start with and then just felt i wasn't in the right shape to go there and win so decided to you know give myself six more weeks and, and go to the giro and try and do it there and you know, I had a bit of a rest period after Dauphiné and, and suddenly was feeling a lot better already. And then, you know, some good training and dropped a little bit of weight. And suddenly then, you know, Tirreno, I was right back up there in the thick of it and just enjoying racing again. And, um, yeah, confident and looking forward to the Giro. And then obviously, yeah, like you say, for it to, to end so abruptly and so soon, you know, didn't even get a chance to sort of show what I could do. Um, was really frustrating. Um, and, you know, the fact that committed to it 100%, you know, the six weeks prior to the Giro, I think I'd seen my wife and my son who was, well, he must have been sort of like 11 months then. Um, yeah, I'd seen them maybe four days, I think. So, you know, sacrificed everything and really committed. And then for it to sort of end like that was, was hard to take. But then, you know, you go home and, you know, you, you see your family and stuff and you soon just realise there are, other things in life but at the same time when well, it's been your whole life really for the last six weeks or so is, is it is hard to take but the once the race was was done and you know everyone sort of moved on and you know there's another race happening you soon sort of with time you sort of just get over it really and um yeah you just, just figure out what you want to do next and, and focus on that and then just uh yeah crack on with that really and use that sort of frustration, whatever, in uh, your preparation for for your next objective. Which one was more of an emotional setback, the 2020 crash at the Giro or the 2017 motorbike uh, crash? Uh, which one was sort of the, the, the more emotional agony? I think uh, 2020, because I knew I could do it. I knew exactly what I needed to do, and I knew I was in the shape to, to be right there. So... Um, yeah, 17 was still hard, but I think, yeah, 2020, especially, like I say, with a with a young son at home as well and uh, just missing out on, on quite a bit of stuff, uh, you know, in order to be in the right shape for that and then for it to just end as it did. But, you never know, third time lucky, maybe. <laughs> well, and I mean, I, I, I would have to assume also seeing the team really rise to the occasion and, and be able to take a win might have been some type of silver lining for you as well. Yeah, definitely. Like to be honest, I struggle to to watch most stages because you know it. It's just sort of like I'm 
well, I said before, it's kind of like when your mate breaks up with her ex and then every time you go to the pub, she's there with her new fella, you know, and he's just like sat there in the corner having to watch him. And it's just like, it's the same thing, you know, you just, you don't want to watch, you just don't want to be a part of it really. And then obviously you're still, are still happy to see everyone doing well. And, you know, the boys winning the stages left, right and centre and obviously Teo moving up all the time. And, you know, it was great for the team and, you know, I was happy for him. But at the same time, it was, it was hard to watch. You know, Teo is a guy that we know quite well. You know, he raced in the domestic U.S. scene with the action team, and I, I've interviewed him a bunch. He's a funny character. Um, you know, at, at what point – we saw him make steady progression from a physical standpoint. I remember in 2018 when he and Egan came and just steamrolled the Tour of California, and it was like, holy cow, this kid is, you know, something else. I'm curious – did you ever get the sense that he had the mentality and the personality to win a Grand Tour? Obviously, you know, legs and lungs are what, legs and lungs are one thing, but brain and attitude and, and nerves are another. And, and I'm curious if you um, had seen that in him before. Uh, yeah, like obviously he rode really well when I won the Dauphiné in '18. Like he was there with me, and he was, um, you know, key to that win. Um, but yeah, it's one thing riding well as a domestique for a couple of days in Dauphiné, and then going and winning a Grand Tour. So. You know, he, he definitely had the legs for it. And, yeah, like you say, the mentality, yeah, I think he's always had that sort of uh, that drive and passion. Like, sometimes it, it boils over. Sometimes he can be a bit emotional. But um, you always knew he, he definitely had it, a, a top, top performance in him. Um, just didn't expect it so soon, if I'm honest. But, you know, it's just great for him. And I think now his confidence is, you know, sky high and he can really sort of kick on from here now and, uh, you know, win bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Well, great, Garrett. Well, we're going to continue watching you on the bike throughout the next couple of weeks and months. But, you know, I wanted to talk about some of what you've been up to off the bike as well. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you um, are also a podcaster. You have the What's Occurring podcast with Luke Rowe, and now you have this new Garrett Thomas cycling um, podcast. So, I mean, I, I'm curious, are you like... You know, you're doing all the audio editing on Audacity, crowdsourcing questions from Twitter. I mean, like as a fellow podcaster, I know the agony that goes into putting one of these things going. Like, how are you? How are you putting this thing together? Uh, for me, it's quite simple, really. So I do it with Tom Fordyce, who has helped me write a few, well, three of my books, uh-huh. and uh, then we have Louise, who, who's the uh, editor and the producer. So she does all the hard work, to be honest. And me and Tom just chat a load of crap for an hour or so, and then they had it together and put it out basically but um yeah i enjoy doing them it's uh you know we'll get a diff- different guest on each week and uh just talk cycling basically and different parts of it so the first episode's on climbing where we get richie port on and uh there's a- another episode you know time trials with rowan dennis and uh kit we got uh sir paul smith on a fashion designer so yeah and then we just you know reminisce really talk about you know stories old stories and things and it was just uh nice to do and then obviously a good way of starting up a little club as well so obviously yeah the garen thomas cycling club podcast and uh you know anyone who listens can be a part of it and just create a bit of a community as well and we can go on zwift and uh have our weekly rides um hopefully i'll be able to make them all but you know there'll be a few i probably won't be able to make but majority i'll be there and you know we can all just ride for an hour on Zwift and uh, yeah I think it's quite a good thing to do I mean are these projects that you're doing with uh, an eye on you know what your life is going to look like after cycling or is this more just a fun thing to do right now well it's a bit of both really you know I think it's it's a fun thing to do at the moment but at the same 
Imus, uh, it doesn't hurt in sort of adding a few more strings to the bow, as they say, you know, with, with when I stop and give me a few more options, really, because, you know, um, it's still a few years off yet, but, you know, I've seen some close mates of friends of mine retire over the last couple of years. And, you know, it's when you go from suddenly having a big goal, you know, in a couple of months' time or whatever for your whole life, and then suddenly, you know, you're retired and there's nothing. I think, you know, it's it's good to sort of try and, plan a bit at least so uh what about this uh, partnership with amp human that was uh, another one i saw you know you got involved in this company that makes the uh the sport gel what can you tell me about that yeah so basically that was back in 2018 as well when i was over in california actually in in, in la and uh cameron worth introduced me to to jeff the guy at uh, amp human and basically yeah they he gave me this uh bicarb cream which yeah you obviously apply to your legs or whatever sort of muscles you want it working um and yeah i, I used this for time trials because uh, we used to use bicarb on the track um but it was like really hard to, to drink and stomach really so use it on the legs for that and, and any sort of big training sessions and for recovery and yeah i feel like it's uh it certainly hasn't been a detrimental effect um, feel like it, you definitely get a benefit from it and um, so yeah they've come on board to, to help sort of uh, uh, with the podcast as well so that's great well Gary Thomas you have been a wonderful guest here on the Villain News Podcast consider it an open door policy you are always invited uh, to come back on and talk to the talk to the Yanks the Americans out there. oh lovely thanks appreciate that yeah I always uh, love my time down in LA anyway so hope you'll be back next year 